What do you consider the most precious thing in your life? Hopefully it would be a person and not a thing. For most of us, a spouse, a child, a grandchild. What if you only had one child later in your life and you can have no more children? Certainly you'd be happy the Lord gave you that child. And for many years you pour out your love, your affection upon that child as he or she grows and matures. But one day your child becomes deathly ill. You end up in the hospital where he or she is put uh, into life support. The doctors have done everything they can to alleviate the situation. And all you can do is put your faith and trust in God in that situation. How would you respond? What would you be thinking? Would you be questioning God? Would you be wondering why he allowed this to happen in your life? Would this be the severest test of your faith in God? Well, I'm sure it was for Abraham, who is doubly commended for his faith in Hebrews chapter 11. You'll remember that he was called by God to leave the land of his nativity, the family that he loved, and go to an unknown place that God himself would show him. And his faith was displayed by obedience. He did what God said. Abraham's journey of faith then became one of ups and downs, as we have seen. Sometimes it was small, sometimes it was great, but it was always growing. And this morning we come to the greatest, severest test of his faith. God calls him again, telling him to do something inexplicable, something that contradicted all of the promises of God up to this point. The Lord wants him to sacrifice Isaac, the long-awaited, unique, miraculous son of promise. But through this intense and stressful ordeal, Abraham's faith is triumphant. His faith meets its climax as he passes through this trial. And as we observe it once again this morning, we learn some important truths about triumphant faith. So let's ask God's blessing on his word. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful today that we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. But Lord, we know that that first step of faith we took is not sufficient for a lifelong walk with you. We know, Lord, that you will take us through many experiences of life that will try that faith. And Lord, although we may not meet a test like Father Abraham did, we certainly have tests of our own that are similar. And we pray, Lord, that as we are confronted with these difficult times, that our faith would be triumphant even as Abraham's was. Even, Lord, when you ask us to give up something most precious. So, Lord, bless us as we study your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The first thing I want us to notice here this morning is that triumphant faith is produced through severe testing. 
And we see here that, of course, God tested Abraham quite severely. Now, in our story, we are given another chronological jump. It simply says, verse 1, Now it came to pass after these things. All right, what things are previous to this? Well, we're not given an exact date, only a reference that Occur, uh, uh, that this occurs after the separation of Ishmael from the family, the weaning of Isaac, and the covenant that God made, or, or rather Abraham made with Abimelech. However, Isaac, as we learn from the story, is old enough to bear a load of wood up a mountainside sufficient to burn a sacrifice. And although he is called a lad or a boy in the story, the word that is used for him is the same one as in verse 5 where it says young men or servants. So it seems that he would at least have been a teenager by now, probably around 16 years of age. So he's old enough to know what's going on. He's old enough to know that his life uh, might end at a very young age. <clears throat> we as readers, however, are <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> are informed from the very beginning that what transpires is a test <clears throat> from the Lord. At this time, God tested Abraham. Now, <clears throat> he speaks to Abraham after many years. Apparently, there has been silence during this time. The last thing we know of a revelation to him, God told Abraham to send away Hagar and Ishmael. But what he says now is quite stunning. God's purpose in testing, though, is always good. It's to prove our love for him above all else, to grow in our dependence upon him and we know this is a test, but Abraham does not know this is a test. And Abraham's response is telling. When God calls him, Abraham, he says, here I am. And that's important because that indicates that when God calls Abraham, he's ready now to listen to the Lord. He's come far in his journey of faith. He's learned much about who God is and that he is a God who keeps his promises. And he's ready not only to hear God, but to obey. And the idea of hearing the Lord in the word of God always has the, the uh, meaning of obeying what you hear. This phrase is repeated two more times in the text. You'll notice in verse 7, in response to Isaac's question, he says the same thing. He's ready to hear his son. And then in verse 11, in response to the angel of the Lord, he also says, here am I. And this should be the response of all believers as God speaks to them out of his word. Here am I, Lord. I'm ready to hear you and I'm ready to do whatever it is you have to say. Now, God's word to Abraham is puzzling and also severe. Look at what he says in verse 2. Every phrase increases the severity of what Abraham is called to do. And it must have hit him like a ton of bricks. God says in verse 2, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
Can you imagine the Lord calling upon you to do that today? Well, of course, Isaac is not Abraham's only son. Ishmael is his son as well. But we've already seen that Ishmael has moved off the scene, and he's been gone for many, many years. The term only specifies the son of promise, and he names him as Isaac, the one whom God said would be Abraham's progeny and would carry on the promises into the future. It also carries the idea of uniqueness or one and only. Only Isaac was unique. Because his birth was miraculous, it was humanly impossible. God had to intervene to make it so. That's typical of the only begotten Son of God, who also is unique by virtue of a miraculous birth, but also that he's the God-man, he's deity. Furthermore, Isaac is the son whom Abraham loved and perhaps doted upon. What must he do with this son of promise? God says, go and sacrifice him to me on a mountain that I'll show you. You know, Abraham had already made some sacrifices in his walk with God, hadn't he? He left his homeland. He left the family that he loved in order to follow the Lord. He sacrificed really the son of Ishmael at God's command. And now he has to sacrifice the son of promise. How could he uh, do what God commanded him to do? First of all, it involved a human sacrifice. That's what the pagans did. We know as the reader, that this is not going to happen because we know it's a test from God. But again, remember, Abraham does not know this yet. Then it involves a contradiction of all that God has so far promised to Abraham. What good will the land be to him if there are no descendants to fill it? How will he become a great nation if his promised son is slain? And then how will all the nations of the earth be blessed uh, unless it's through Isaac? And furthermore, how can he bring himself to carry out this commandment to slay his beloved son? Can you think of a more difficult, more severe test of your faith? Well, the word of God tells us God will test the faith of all believers. In James chapter 1, he writes to us, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials or tests, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Such testing can be quite severe, as we see in Abraham's case. But Peter calls it a fiery trial, which is to try you. Why does God allow this? Why isn't our initial faith enough? Well, God tests us to see if that faith is real, to see if it's genuine. He tests us to see if we love him more than anything else in the world. And he tests us in order to grow that faith grow our understanding of who he is and our experience of his provision in times of testing. 
So we need to remember that God has a good purpose in his trials, that they are part of our journey of spiritual growth and development. Now, let's go on to see here that triumphant faith obeys God no matter the cost. And Abraham's response here is interesting. First of all, because there is no verbal response. He is silent. There's no word from Abraham until we get to the end of the journey to the mountain. There's no questioning God. There's no reasoning with the Lord as he has done previously. We're not even told what Abraham is thinking in this situation. So what do we do? We kind of fill in the blank, don't we? We think how we would approach that situation. What would I be going through? What would I be thinking? Uh, How could the Lord want me to do such a thing? How will his promise be fulfilled if Isaac is offered up? How can I reconcile what God has already revealed to me and already begun to fulfill for me with that which he now reveals to me? So we can imagine the severe struggle within Abraham's heart and mind during the next three days. And as the story is told to us, it's kind of drawn out here to add to the tension. He doesn't just go to the mountain. Uh, an explanation is given is how he goes there. He rose early in the morning. That indicates, again, obedience. He saddles his donkey. He goes and he selects two servants who will accompany him. Then he gets Isaac, his son. And then he uh, uh, chops the wood that will be used for the sacrifice. So, intently and methodically, he prepares to follow the Lord's will. And on the third day, they finally arrive at their destination. Now, in verse 5, Abraham breaks his silence. This is the first word we have from him. And he's speaking to his young men or his servants. He says to them, stay here with the donkey, the lad, and I will go yonder and worship. So we're going up the mountain to worship. This is something only the two of us can do. This is what the Lord has commanded. But note what he says here at the end. And we will come back to you. So what does that indicate? that indicates that somehow in this situation, Abraham is trusting the Lord. Somehow this is going to turn out right. Abraham has reconciled the disparity between what God has earlier promised and what God now asks of him to do. And he's willing to bear the great cost to himself if that's God's will. Yet, he believes that the Lord will somehow provide, somehow work it out, even though he has no idea how that can happen. And this is what the author of Hebrews was getting at 
when he wrote, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So Abraham had enough faith in the first chapters of the word of God before any indication even of sacrificial sacrifice has been given that God somehow could even raise up his son Isaac. What great faith that was. And we see that we need to respond to God's testing in the same way, even when the cost appears to be insurmountable. Jesus made this clear in Matthew chapter 10 and verses 37 to 38 as he spoke about discipleship. Now let me read those verses to you. Matthew 10 and verse 37 He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You see where the test was? The most precious thing to Abraham was Isaac. And God says, you need to love me more than him. And this is the test that will prove it. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So the Lord Jesus kind of clarifies uh, the test that we could uh, face nowadays that Abraham faced in his day. Abraham did not love his son Isaac, the promised one, more than he loved his Lord. He was willing to give up his greatest possession in obedience to God's command, trusting that God would somehow work it out for good. Now, I don't know all the ways God could test this in our lives today, uh, but we should be ready to obey no matter what he asks us to do or what he's trying to teach us. For instance... If God calls you as a younger person to the mission field, should you say no? If God calls your child or grandchild to the mission field, should you say no? I don't want you to go. I only see you maybe once every four years. Whatever is most precious to us must be laid before the Lord for him to do with as he pleases. And triumphant faith will bear whatever cost God demands from us. Thomas Constable wrote, The faithful believer will surrender to God whatever he he may ask, trusting God's promise of provision and blessing. And that leads to our next point. Triumphant faith anticipates God's provision in testing. Now, in verse 6, we have the final preparations being made for sacrifice. 
Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. Doesn't that remind you of something in the New Testament? The cross made out of wood was laid on the Lord Jesus Christ and he carried it for at least some of the distance to Mount Golgotha. And so it's kind of typical of the Lord Jesus Christ. The difference, though, is that Isaac was likely unaware at this moment of what was going to happen to him. The Lord Jesus knew full well that he was going to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Now Abraham, we're told, carries the fire, he he carries the torch with which he will light the sacrifice. He carries the knife, which will be the instrument of death. And he's fully prepared to carry out the Lord's strange command. But Isaac, perhaps, is beginning to wonder, to put two and two together. And so he asks his father, well, Abba, father, I see the fire, I see the wood, but I don't see the sacrifice. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? The most important part was missing. And so he's beginning to think, wonder what's going on here. And note here that the father-son relationship is being stressed. Because we find in the whole passage, ten times the word son is mentioned in the story. So that just kind of increases the pathos as you read and as you see the scene unfolding. Now Abraham's response to all this anticipates God's provision. Abraham doesn't say, well, Isaac, you're the sacrifice. No, he's still trusting the Lord. And he says in verse 8, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now again, that shows faith. Is Isaac going to end up being the lamb? Or is something else going to end up as being the lamb? He's anticipating for the Lord again to somehow provide. He's ready, he's willing to obey God's command to offer up his son, but at the same time he trusts that God will make a provision that will enable him to still keep all of his promises. And so the two of them continue on together. When we face great testing... Do we anticipate the Lord's provision? Do we trust the Lord has a good purpose, even in a really difficult, serious experience? Do we believe that he can work things out for his honor and his glory? Do we trust that his promises will hold true, even when it seems like our experience is at cross purposes with what we know about God? Do we trust when we are asked to give up that which is most dear to ourselves? 
Do we trust the Holy Spirit has the power and the ability to help us to be triumphant in both testing and temptation? Triumphant faith anticipates God's provision in any trial to see us through. As we go on here, we see also that triumphant faith demonstrates a proper fear of God. The tension of the obedience here again begins to build as they arrive at the place of sacrifice in verse 9. They came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. So Abraham goes to the top of this mount. He gathers stones and he makes a rough altar there. He lays the wood down. But still there's no lamb, literally speaking. And then we see that he does something showing his complete obedience. He binds Isaac, his son, and lays him on the altar. And let's remember here, Abraham's an old man. Abraham is 115 to 120 years old. His son is a strong at least teenager, maybe even older. Easily he could have overpowered his father. Easily he could have run away, but he allows himself to be bound. So now he has to know who the lamb is. And again, we see another picture here of Christ's sacrificial submission to the will of his father when he was asked to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Well, the sacrifice is all prepared. And then if we were watching a movie, the next verse would be a slow motion scene. As Abraham slowly reaches his hand out to the knife. Perhaps it pans to his face. Then back to the knife. And then to his face in his raising arm, ready to plunge it into the heart of his son. And all of a sudden, God calls out. Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, thankfully, here I am. I'm ready to listen to what you have to say. So in his heart, in his mind, Isaac was as good as dead. He's demonstrated his fear of God is greater than his love for his only son. So seeing Abraham's obedience... The Lord stays his hand. And what's the reason that God gives for accepting the sacrifice of Abraham short of the actual death of his son? Well, God says through his angel, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So what does the fear of the Lord mean, which Abraham has proven by his obedience right up to the last second? Well, we know it means to respect God 
It means to love him. It means to trust him. It means to obey him supremely. And the fear of the Lord is really the Old Testament concept of faith and trust, which is demonstrated by our obedience to his will and his word. By not even holding back his dearly beloved son, which is the key to all of God's promises, Abraham showed he feared God above all else. We think, well, didn't God already know that of Abraham? Well, yes and no. Yes, in God's omniscience, he knew the heart of Abraham and he knew what he would do. But this knowledge, even God's knowledge, has to work itself out in time and history. And God knew it now by experience when Abraham actually, in life, obeyed God. And whenever we obey the Lord, whether it's in little or it's in much, we're showing that we fear him above everything. Faith is the result of the proper respect that is due God. It's a demonstration of our love for him above everything else in life. So in that measure, do we really fear God? Then we see, as the story continues, that triumphant faith experiences God's provision. Not only does it anticipate it, but when the trial takes place, we begin to experience it. And in verse 13, Abraham lifted his eyes and he looked. Now, we're not exactly sure uh, when this developed or took place, but as he looks around, and and, um, it may have been he looked behind him, uh, it says there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So that was God's provision to take the place of Isaac, his son. And only after Abraham passes the test does he see uh, the provision. And this is the first instance of substitutionary sacrifice we have in the Bible. And it's a progenitor of the law that will come in the days of Moses, where this will be fully explained and defined And the fact that in order to be forgiven of sin, a sacrifice must be substituted in your place. That will all develop later on. But here's the first concept of it. And to commemorate the Lord's provision, what he did uh, to offer a sacrifice instead of Isaac, he names the place Yahweh Yirah, the Lord will provide, or the Lord has seen to it, if you will. And this is going to be the future center of God's provision for all of our sins. Centuries later, King David is going to purchase a threshing floor. Guess where that's going to be? He names the place Mount Moriah. Now, we don't know if this is the exact mountain or not. It's not clear because it's, a, it's an area surrounding Jerusalem that is kind of mountainous. But in this same area, God will guide 
David to select the place where his son Solomon will build the temple. And on that place, uh, for centuries, provision will be made for the sins of Israel. And one day, the Lord Jesus Christ will be taken out of the city gates of Jerusalem, and he will be sacrificed in that same general area for our sins. So as a reminder to us of the need for sin to be atoned through sacrifice, and that a thousand more years after Solomon, the Lord Jesus uh, comes into the world, and he treads up Calvary's mountain to offer himself as a ransom for our sin. And in that mount, the Lord will provide the offering for everyone who will look to Jesus as their Savior. The final thing we note this morning is in verses 15 through 19. And that is that triumphant faith is assured of God's promises and blessings. In verse 15, the angel of the Lord speaks again to Abraham. And he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. So here we have an oath of God. We've looked at some oaths previous to this. But now we have the Lord swearing by himself, which he could not swear by a higher being. He makes an oath. He makes a promise. And this is the fullness and the completion of everything he said before. He says, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing. So this is a result of Abraham proving that he loved the Lord more than anything, even his son Isaac. And on that basis, the Lord repeats, reiterates his promises, and he solidifies them by an oath. That you have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. So he puts everything together he's already promised, and he adds to that one thing here when he says your seed, your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. So that's an addition. And what that alludes to is the ability to overcome those who are against you. Now, in those days, a gate that, uh, a city that had a gate was a fortified city. It had a wall surrounding it, and the way you got in was through a gate or several gates, depending on its size. And so that gate became the major focus of defense. That's what you uh, sent your men to. That's what you sent your barricades to, to prevent people from breaking down that gate and getting in and conquering the city because that's what would happen. But the promise of the Lord here is that you are going to break down the gates of your enemies and you're going to conquer your enemies. As time passes, that's exactly what Israel will do when they come into the land of promise. They will possess their enemies. And really, in a sense, uh, you can expand that to our spiritual victory in times of temptation or times of trial. That when the enemy tries to defeat us in those times, we will possess them. We will conquer them through God's word and his spirit. 
He goes on to repeat the promise in verse 18, and in your seed, your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So what that assures us of is again that the Lord Jesus will come and through him every nation will be blessed as they call upon him for salvation. So through obedience, we too are assured of God's promises. When we're living a triumphant faith as we're supposed to be, even severe tests will not defeat us. We are going to gain a renewed sense of God's presence and power as we trust him in that trial, trust his provision to help us through it, We're going to grow in our faith as we see how he provides for us uh, patience, comfort, spiritual strength, whatever it is that we need to endure, he provides. And even when that test involves sacrifice, giving up that which is dear to us, we do so gladly because we fear the Lord more than anything. The Lord wants to be sure that he is first place in our life. That our love for him exceeds all others. And we should not be surprised that he tests us from time to time to see if that is indeed the case. And in such times, we should be willing to give him all that he asks, trusting in his provision and his blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would inspire our faith to be triumphant as we see it was in the life of Abraham. Lord, we know that we will go through testing. And oftentimes that testing is severe, it's difficult, it's hard. We don't always understand what you're doing in these situations. But Lord, help us to have faith that you do know what you're doing. And even if we think it's not in agreement with what we know about you, that we would still keep trusting you and looking for your provision in trial. And Lord, help us to come through triumphant as Abraham did, even when you call upon us to give up what is dear to us. We ask for your help that we might obey in those times like Abraham did. In Jesus' name, amen.